Um, all right, well, we uh, took a few weeks off, and um, <clears throat> I trust your holidays went well. We are launching a new series on the heels of the parable of the sower because the transition is so natural, uh, but also it's a, I think it's an important subject and, <coughs> excuse me, a timely subject, uh, a, a series dealing with the Holy Spirit. I'd like you to turn with me, if you will, to Acts chapter 2. Father, we welcome uh, you uh, to this place tonight, your presence, by your Holy Spirit, and pray that you would teach us, that you would uh, make yourself known to us through your Word and by your Holy Spirit. And I pray that each of us tonight before we leave here, we'll have an encounter with you and be refreshed by your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter 2, some refer to this as the day the church was born. On the Jewish feast day of Pentecost, Verse 1, they were all together in one place, those some 120 disciples who had gathered there together, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as a fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, why are not all these who are speaking, or, or rather, why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? So this is an extraordinary event. Uh, the crowd was um, amazed at what they were witnessing. And finally, uh, uh, Peter stands and he explains to this crowd that had gathered and who had, in fact, uh, some among them began to mock them and suggest that they were actually drunk. So Peter stood, raised his voice, and declared to them, verse 14, Men of Judea, and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says. He's now quoting the prophet Joel from the, um, uh, what we find in the second chapter of the book of Joel. That I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women... I will in those days pour forth of my spirit and they shall prophesy and I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. 
The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 22, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Let's skip ahead to verse 29. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God hath sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ. And so he has announced that this extraordinary event that they're witnessing is in fact a fulfillment of, uh, the beginning of a fulfillment of this extraordinary pro uh, prophecy that was listed in the book of Joel. And the church has been uh, rocking under the power of the fulfillment of that prophecy for the last 2,000 years. And periodically, God pours His Spirit out once again upon His church and upon all flesh. And, and there are many, and I account myself among them, who sense that we are on the cusp of just such an outpouring in this hour, that God will once again bring renewal to His church and pour His Spirit out upon all flesh. And boy, we need it, don't we? It seems like the world is on fire. Uh, and, and again, God has periodically done this uh, Throughout the history of the church, the last such really significant outpouring, I think, occurred in the late 50s and early 60s. We refer to it as uh, the charismatic movement. Interestingly, there were, uh, there were several men and women whom God used so significantly, particularly as pioneers in that movement. One of them was a man named David Duplessy, who came from a traditional Pentecostal classical Pentecostal background. He was, uh, in fact, the general superintendent, uh, if that's the title they, uh, um, they prescribed for their president. I've forgotten now if it was or wasn't. But of the largest Pentecostal denomination in South Africa, uh, the Apostolic Faith Mission. And he was hosting Smith Wigglesworth, who was a British evangelist, uh, who was also Pentecostal, uh, he was hosting him there in South Africa and also serving as his translator when they were going out um, in, into the bush. Has anyone ever heard of Smith Wigglesworth? Let me see your hands if you've heard of him. Okay. Um, remarkable ministry uh, that God had given to Smith Wigglesworth. Uh, at any rate, he was ministering there and suddenly burst in uh, early one morning at about 7 o'clock in the morning, in fact, into David Duplessis' office. And it was David's practice uh, during those years to rise early and try to complete his correspondence before the rest of the uh, office workers came in while it was still quiet. So Smith Wigglesworth burst in upon his silent time and, and uh, 
commanded David to stand up from behind his desk and essentially pinned him up against the wall. And he began to prophesy to him. And he, he said to um, um, David that an outpouring of the Spirit was coming. And in this wave of renewal, it would, it would eclipse anything that God had uh, done through the, the Pentecostal movement. Well, that was anathema to the ears of a Pentecostal because they, they felt for certain that whatever God was doing in the earth, he would do in and through the Pentecostal movement. And they had essentially written off the historic churches, the mainline churches, as uh, dying or dead. Uh, and yet, what Smith Wigglesworth began to prophesy, and he had seen this in a vision, so he was more or less telling him what he had seen, was that God would send an outpouring of his spirit that would eclipse anything that had ever been realized through the Pentecostal movement, and great, uh, 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 great halls and stadiums would be filled with men and women who had received this blessing within the context of the historic mainline churches which seemed impossible to David, and I think he was slightly um, annoyed by the idea that it would happen <laughs> through these groups that the Pentecostal movement had more or less written off. Uh, but in fact, it did happen, uh, just as he had said, and, and in fact, God used, and he explained to David that you will play a prominent role in that. And by 1978, David Duplessy was listed uh, in Time Magazine as one of the 11 most influential Christian leaders of the, the uh, 20th century church in, uh, alongside of men like Karl Barth. And he did have uh, uh, an exceptional ministry and it, it was uh, profoundly influential. He moved here to the United States. He lectured regularly at our Ivy League schools and was working with, with leaders in the historic churches uh, urging them to stay put, don't leave when they had received this baptism with the Holy Spirit. He encouraged them to stay uh, and work within their denominations and the effect of that was just a wonderful um, wave of renewal that swept through the churches. And the epicenter of that really was the Anglican Church, the, the Episcopal Church in North America uh, for probably 12 to 14 years the, throughout the 60s and, and the mid-70s. And it all... Uh, one of the highlights of that was a meeting of something like 100,000 people in Kansas City in, I think, 1974 for huge conference. Of course, it had swept through the Roman Catholic Church. And David's brother, Justice, who was trained as a lawyer but also became a minister um, and, in fact, became the head of the AFM in South Africa and the... Um, um, not the director, but uh, he headed along with Father McKillian on the Roman Catholic side, the Roman Catholic uh, Pentecostal dialogue that was held annually at the Vatican. And uh, I was ministering at his invitation in South Africa in, during the 90s, and uh, he had asked me to come pray for one of his daughters, and we were at her home, and he, he wanted me to anoint her with oil, and I saw him take a, a leather pouch from his belt and uh, unsnap it and hand me a, a, a vial of oil. And I looked on the cap of the oil and it said, it had the address, I think, 10 Bradford Court. 
property of Smith Wigglesworth. <laughs> he had interpreted for Smith in South Africa as well, and Smith had left that with him. I try not to covet, but <laughs> I thought it sure would be nice to have that. <laughs> um, those were wonderful days. I actually enjoyed uh, being a part of that at the uh, late 70s and early 80s. But it really began to peter out by the uh, late 80s, I think. And uh, so many have been waiting for a fresh wave of the Holy Spirit. And as I said earlier, I think we are now on the cusp of it. And, and I'm enthused about it. But the, there's something remarkable about um, discussions concerning the Holy Spirit in the church. You would think it would be uh, a marvelously unifying um, doctrine and, and experience and idea, but amazingly, it, it can be very uh, divisive. And so as we work through this, I, I want to um, suggest that we're going to explore some ideas. We're going to be sort of like topographers wandering through the countryside and creating a map. Um, uh, I'm going to, to share with you uh, different thoughts concerning some of these issues, particularly tongues. Have you ever heard of that? Speaking with other tongues? That, that is an issue which everyone instantly agrees upon and there is never even the slightest dissent. <laughs> now, and it's historical dissent. You know, we, are, if you, are you familiar with the Nicene Creed? Each Sunday morning, we declare this together. We, we uh, finally arrive at the paragraph dealing with the Holy Spirit, and I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father and the Son. Say that with me. Who proceedeth from the Father and the Son. That sounds fairly innocuous, doesn't it? Have you ever heard of the great schism? <laughs> the um, division between the Eastern Church and the Western Church. I think it was... Was it 1054, I think? Somewhere, I think it was 1054. And there were, there were theological disputes and ecclesiastical disputes before that. But in 1054, the split was complete between what we now call the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. But it was Eastern and Western Christianity. And the split was complete in 1054 over this clause. We call it the Philoque. It's Double procession. Yeah, in, the, in the, I think, 325, something like that, the first, uh, not the first draft, but the Nicene Creed, which would continue in that fashion for about 300 years, simply explained that the Holy Spirit proceeded from the Father. In six, 625, I, I suppose I should have written this down, sometime during the 7th century, that clause was added. And the Son, which is a, a theologically sound addition. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. But that became, in 1054, the uh, point of uh, disagreement that split the church. So when we talk about matters pertaining to the Holy Spirit, it has a rather volatile past. Um, and so I, I want simply to say... As, as we explore this, and that's what I want to suggest that we're going to do, we're going to explore. 
we may not all agree on every point, and I certainly am not going to teach anything in some dogmatic fashion, but I'm, gonna, I'm going to introduce some ideas that you may, uh, you may be well aware of and very comfortable with. For some of you, it may be some of the first times you've heard that, and I may have an opinion about some of these ideas that you disagree with. And if you do, I'm okay with that. If you're wrong, you're wrong. <laughs> now, if, if, I, if I have an opinion that you disagree with, um, that's okay. I may be wrong. You may be wrong. But we certainly um, wouldn't want to allow that disagreement to become a, a reason for becoming incensed at one another. Or a reason for you to stop listening to me or me to stop talking to you. <laughs> and in fact, it may be one of those... Um, it, it may offer you an opportunity to explore it a little further, maybe change your mind, or uh, chat with me and change my mind. Um, but, but what I don't want uh, this to become is is something that creates tension, and certainly not division. And so I'll be very careful in the way I share my ideas, and I want you to understand that, you know, there are obviously things here that are written so plainly, it's very difficult to disagree about them. But then there are areas in which our own personal experiences and history may color how we see a thing. And so I will try to be careful in delineating between my opinion and what I think Scripture actually says. And so I'm going to ask you to extend toward me enough grace to do that, uh, and, and yet we can all feel comfortable as we're working through this, okay? And, and if at any point I say something you disagree with and you have a question about or you'd really like to comment about it, you don't hesitate. I, I, I don't think it would be a good idea just to shout it out during the service. But don't hesitate at all after the service to come up and say, Larry, um, I, you know, I, I, I have an issue with what you said, or I don't quite understand this, or actually I think you're dead wrong, and I'd like to share with you my thoughts. That's great. I, that, not only does that not bother me, um, I, I enjoy um, the dialogue, so please don't hesitate to do that, okay? All right, let's get started. Let's turn to Matthew, or excuse me, Mark, chapter 5. Let's begin with verse 25. A woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. Immediately, the flow of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her daughter, Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. This is an extraordinary story to me. 
because it suggests something very heartening. And that is that you and I can lay hold of a promise God has given us in His Word at will. We can choose to trust in His Word. To trust in the love that this promise is conveying. So entirely that it yields in our lives a miracle. I so enjoy seeing miracles wrought by God through the laying on of hands. Through the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I love to see these sovereign acts of God in which people are suddenly healed dramatically. But what I treasure even more than that is the simple truth conveyed to us in this brief account of a woman who had heard of Jesus. Faith sprang up in her heart and she set out that day to receive a miracle from Him. Jesus did not begin that day searching for the woman we simply call uh, the woman with the issue of blood. In fact, at this particular juncture, he was journeying to the home of a man who had come to him and sought him out, pleading with him to come to his home and pray for his daughter. While they were journeying toward his home, um, their journey was interrupted by this woman's act of faith. So Jesus did not set out looking for her. This wasn't a sovereign act of God. She set out looking for him. Why? Because she had heard. And the moment she touched his garment, power flowed out of him and into her body and she was made whole. And he said, who did that? And his disciples, <laughs> it must have been challenging <laughs> at certain points. Jesus said, who touched me? And, and they essentially said, uh, right. There's hundreds of people, maybe thousands, pressing in on you on every side, and you're, you're actually asking who touched your garment. And Jesus realized the futility of quizzing that was meant about this and started scouting for this person himself. And the woman came and fell down before him. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should receive eternal life. And yet we know that not everyone is, is going to receive eternal life. That there will be some people uh, uh, who will spend eternity separated from God. And yet we know that it is not His will. If they choose not to, to believe, God has no choice but to allow them to persist in that, in that choice. In Deuteronomy, he says simply, I set before you life and death. In Deuteronomy, the 30th chapter, I think verse 19, blessing and cursing, choose life that you and your seed may live. So this is, this is essential. And faith is saying, Lord, I believe. I choose to believe you. And God, at that instant, is free to liberate in our lives salvation on whatever level we're appropriating it at that time. But faith can seem a little tricky. 
Is, it, is faith just, uh, is it a psychological phenomenon? Uh, can I sit here, or stand here rather, you sit there, and uh, convince you through my extraordinary powers of persuasion <laughs> to believe these words that I repeat to you over and over, or if you convert them into a mantra, and you repeat them over and over and over, do they somehow release faith? No. In fact, Jesus said regarding prayer, He said, don't be like the heathen who think they will be heard for their much speaking. What is it that lies at the heart of real faith? A faith that is able to appropriate God's promises. Well, turn with me to Romans 10. We just quoted it a moment ago. Let's look at that a little more closely. Romans chapter 10. You will see, I think, how this relates to this series that we will begin tonight uh, regarding the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 10. Verse 17. So faith comes from hearing. And hearing by the word of Christ. Now, we, we touched on this several weeks ago. The word, as it occurs here, is in the original text the word rhema, which means God breathed. It's not the logos, this written word. It is a word spoken by God. In the story we just read uh, concerning the woman with the issue of blood, uh, the, the, the ruler of the synagogue who had come and pled with Jesus to return with him to his home, and Jesus agreed to, you'll recall in route they were stopped and a messenger said, your daughter is dead, there's no need to trouble Jesus any longer. And we read that as soon as Jesus heard the word which was spoken, he said, don't stop believing. Don't begin being afraid. Don't stop believing. Now, I don't believe if, if a Peter or Paul had taken him aside and said, it's okay, everything's going to be all right. Don't be afraid. Keep believing. I don't believe it would have had the same impact as it enjoyed when Jesus said it. Why? Because Jesus said it. When Jesus spoke, uh, something extraordinary happened because his words weren't merely words. In fact, he said in John 6, 63, my words are spirit and they are life. After all, when Jesus spoke, the winds obeyed him. The seas gave up the fish that were in them. Or he multiplied the loaves of bread and the fishes that were brought to him. The dead were brought back to life when he spoke. When he spoke to Jairus, he said, don't be afraid, only believe. And something happened inside. Faith came alive. And despite this horrific news that he had received, Jairus was able to persist in his trust. Have you ever needed that word spoken to you? I mean, we all know, that's horrific. 
and, and few of us have ever had an experience like that, and, and I pray that no one does. But we have had experiences where the faith we felt soaring on Sunday had taken wing and flown away on Wednesday. Right? We know that experience. Imagine if Jesus could stand beside you. And what is your name, sir? Riley? Have I met you before? You look familiar. Okay. Take your word for it. On the post office, is your picture in the post office? I'm just kidding. Um, if, uh, if the Lord suddenly said to you, Riley, it's going to be all right. I want you to continue to trust in me. You'd have no difficulty trusting him. It would be extraordinary. It would be wonderful to know that Jesus was walking with us just as he was walking with Jairus that day. Did you know that he is? Let's look at John chapter 14. I want a rhema word. I need a rhema word. I want faith to be ignited in my heart. And apparently, it is this God-breathed word that serves as the catalyst for enduring faith. Can we actually encourage that volitionally in our lives? Must we wait on a sovereign act of God? Or has this sovereign God chosen sovereignly to place at our disposal what is necessary to enjoy this in our lives each day? John 14, um, okay, we're going to work through this a little. We're not going to get quite as far as I thought. That's not a surprise. We rarely do. Um, but let's, let's start to look at this now. Uh, well, first, let's, let's go to verse uh, 16. I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper, that He may be with you forever. That is, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see Him or know Him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Now remember, Jesus has announced to them, I'm leaving. But I'm coming to you. Verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. Now where's he going? Where's Jesus going? As he's talking to the disciples. Well, he's, going, he's returning to his father via the cross. And the resurrection. He returns to his father and he's there preparing a place for us. But He sent His Spirit to prepare a place for the Father and the Son in us. So that they may dwell with us and dwell in us. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Jesus said to Thomas, who, who, who or, we're not going to take the time, uh, but I encourage you to uh, read through this chapter. Uh, later, you remember Thomas said to Jesus, Jesus, show us the Father. That's enough. Jesus replied, how long have I been with you? And you still don't know. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. 
Now Jesus is saying, I'm not going to leave you alone. I will come to you in the person of the Holy Spirit. Just as we see, uh, we behold and experience God through the Son, Jesus is saying, you will experience me through the person of the Holy Spirit that I'm sending in my stead. And he will not only be with you, but he's also going to be in you. So this comforter, this helper, this teacher, this guide, the paraclete is with us. Just like Jesus was walking along with Jairus that day and turned to him and said, don't be afraid, continue to believe. I'm of the mind that Jesus is with us in the person of God the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, just as he said he would be. And he's not only with me, but resident in me. So there is this intimate relationship that I can have with Jesus in the person of the Holy Spirit. And if I cultivate intimacy, if I cultivate rich communion, I know He hears me when I speak, but Jesus promised me that I know His voice. When I receive Christ as Savior, I acquired instantly the ability to hear His voice and to be able to distinguish it from among its imitators. Now that doesn't mean I always hear it. It simply means I can. But I have to quiet my mind. I have to turn my thoughts and my attention toward Him so that I'm not distracted. But in fact, I can isolate his voice, hear it, understand it, and allow it to release faith in my heart. Because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the God-spoken word. Would you like to cultivate that in your life? Let's look at um, Acts. We saw Acts, the second chapter. We'll, we'll act, let me just remind you of the story. Acts, the first chapter, and we'll close here. Acts, the first chapter. We read uh, of uh, what appeared to be a dilemma for the disciples. Judas was no longer with them, so there were now only 11 rather than 12. And Peter felt that it was important that that uh, 12th man be restored. And uh, so he he said to this group of 120, choose a couple of men that, that qualify. They needed to have been eyewitnesses to Jesus. He laid out the qualifications and two men were, were put forward. And how did they determine which of those two men would become the 12th man? They cast lots. They drew straws. Now, before we laugh too hard at that, how many of us ask God for a sign? 
Lord, if I'm supposed to do this, <clears throat> then I need this to happen. And there are people who will say, there are no coincidences. Oh, sure there are. All the time. <laughs> I've watched people ex suggest a coincidence was the voice of God, and they made a choice based upon it. It was, their, it was the sign they were asking for and got into all sorts of trouble. Think about how silly it is for a moment. Jesus is standing beside me. Jesus, I need to know if this is your will. So will you give me a sign? It would be like my wife saying to me, Larry, I was thinking uh, this weekend uh, we, we might um, do this or do that. And I'm not sure which, which activity you would prefer. Could you give me a sign? I <laughs> think, darling... Did you get enough sleep last night? <laughs> just ask me. I'll, I'll happily tell you. Why don't we just say, Jesus, what's your will? What's your will? Can we hear him? Yes, I shared this a long time ago, and it's just a, it's a, it's a simple little illustration. I lost, I was, Beth and I were, I guess we were engaged at that time, and I was at her, her apartment that she shared with someone rather late. Uh, it was like 11 o'clock at night, and uh, we both had to work the next day. And, and so I reached in my pocket for the keys, and I didn't have them, my car keys. I thought, oh, well, let's find the keys. So we started looking everywhere. We couldn't find them. And I stopped, and I thought, wait, the Lord knows where they are. Lord, where are the keys? I had a simple word, under the arm. And I thought, well, so much for that. There's nothing there. <laughs> so that didn't work. And we turned everything upside down. And about 15 minutes later, I said, Lord, where are the keys? Under the arm. This time I was standing in the living room and I looked across the living room and saw a sofa. Now we were, you know, we were in school then, right? So not a lot of money. So this was a secondhand sofa. And I thought, under the arm. And I walked over to the sofa, and I pulled the cushion back. And, you know, the sofa has an arm. No hands, thankfully, just an arm. <laughs> and I saw a small tear where the fabric came together from the, uh, the, the arm and, and then the um, area where the seat was. And I reached down in that hole and under the arm, and there were the car keys. And I pulled them out and drove home. Now, why did God tell me that? Well, you must be a prophet. No. Very holy man of God. Occasionally. Um, well, it's because you're a minister. No. No. Well, something, in, something incredibly important must have happened. What, what on your way home you must have saved someone's life? Nope. As I went home and went to bed. What happened there? Nothing. Nothing extraordinary. I asked my father, where are the car keys? I'm awfully tired and I would like to go home. And the omniscient, all-knowing God said, they're under the arm. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. I got them and went home. Now, that was just so I could get home. There are a lot of more important choices to make in this life. You think God wants to share with you his opinion? 
his thoughts? Provide the guidance you're yearning for? Sure. We just need to cultivate with Him the sort of intimacy that allows us to isolate His voice, know it when we hear it, and, and uh, choose to obey it when we hear it. That's all. I want faith to come alive in my heart. I need faith to come alive in my heart. So it's imperative that I hear Him. Over the next several weeks, we're going to work through, we're going to talk about the nature of the Holy Spirit. Um, we're going to talk about His role uh, in the life of a believer. We're going to talk about the gifts of the Spirit. We're going to talk about that subject called tongues. We'll explore these things together. And uh, I trust as we do that you're going to discover some things that will help to make a difference uh, in your walk with Jesus. All right? Father, we thank you for this time together in your word. We thank you for your wonderful Holy Spirit that you've given us. And we, we ask you to encourage in our hearts boldness and confidence to expect more from you, more from our relationship with you, to expect intimacy, to expect the sort of interaction that friends might have on a daily basis as they, as they walk and talk together. And I pray that our yearning for this becomes so overwhelming, Father, that we press into You to know these things, to experience them in our own lives. In Jesus' name, amen.